uh, comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, starting at verse 38. You may recall that we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We're coming to the end of this first block where Jesus has been giving uh, six contrasts between real religion, real Christianity, biblical Christianity, and its counterfeit, uh, the religion that was practiced by the, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees of the day. And he comes to contrast number five and number six, starting in verse 38. You've heard it that was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's word to us. Violence is very much part of our world, yes? All you've got to do is turn on the news uh, and you see wars uh, raging across our globe, more troops being sent into Afghanistan, uh, internal conflicts uh, within Iraq. But violence isn't just over there, is it? There's violence in our lives, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our schools. Violence has become so normal that it's actually entertainment, yes? I can remember watching Arnold Schwarzenegger movies growing up. I used to love Arnie movies uh, and uh, used to keep a body count. It was all just part of the entertainment. How many people could get killed in all sorts of bizarre ways uh, by Arnie, and he would still come out at the other end. Entertainment and violence go hand in hand. We have computer games that are realistic combat games. And it's all fun, isn't it? As you kill each other in a virtual world. But if we're honest, and we actually look at what violence does and our own experience of it, we will know the damage it does, and it forces us to look for answers. Where do we actually find resources? And some have looked at religion, hence our theophobia uh, event run by the City Bible Forum. They look at religion and they see that religion is not the answer. It's actually causing the problem. Christopher Hitchens was a fairly uh, famous atheist and a fairly scathing critic of organized religion, whether it's Christianity, Islam, Judaism, or whatever. Hitchens said this, he said, religion has been an enormous multiplier of tribal suspicion and hatred. So if we're looking for a solution to the, answer, to the question of violence, 
We're looking for an answer to that problem. Hitchens says, no, 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 no. Religion is not the answer. It's actually the cause. It's actually one of the root causes of the issue. And so you might be uh, excused to thinking, okay, if it's not religion, maybe secular atheism has something to offer. But uh, if you know history in the last hundred years or so, and the names of Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Pol Pot, committed atheists, tens of millions killed by them and their followers. So where, where do we look for an answer? Religion doesn't have it. Anti-religion doesn't have it. Is there an answer? Or is this just something that we need to live with? Could Christopher Hitchens have it wrong? Now, I'm going to do something that you probably haven't heard too many preachers do. I actually think Christopher Hitchens, in this little bit, actually had it perfectly right. And I actually think that Jesus would agree with Christopher Hitchens. That religion fuels hatred and violence. Now, stay paying attention, please, because there is a but in here. Jesus is a critic of religion. All the way through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been having a dialogue with the counterfeit faith of the religious leaders of his day. And he has been scathing. And he has been contrasting it with true biblical Christianity, with life in the kingdom of God. And Jesus draws a really black line between the two. And he would agree, I think, with Hitchens that religion actually causes more problems than it solves. But he would say that true gospel, biblical Christianity is not a religion at all. As we unpack this passage this morning that I read just a bit before, we'll see that the gospel alone actually addresses the heart of the issue. And the gospel alone gives us unique resources to deal with the issue of violence, both as victims and actually to deal with it in our own hearts and lives. Four points that we're going to look at this morning. An ordinary righteousness, leaving ordinary behind, but why and but how. Let's dig in. An ordinary righteousness. Jesus said... You've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. We've heard this, haven't we? This is very common stuff. You probably don't know where it was said that, but he's quoting Leviticus 24. That was on the tip of your tongue, wasn't it? Leviticus 24, verses 18 to 20. But if you go back and unpack that, you actually find out that what Jesus is quoting here is a prescription that was set down for the judicial system within ancient Israel. And it was put there... To stop retribution. So here you have eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, set aside for judges as they decide the penalty on cases. And so if you suffered the loss of an eye, the most that could be expected would be an eye. If you lost a tooth, the most that would be expected is a tooth. You can't say an eye, and I want your eye, all your teeth, your left arm, and your head in the process. It was a a regulation that actually stopped retribution. 
But in Jesus' day, it actually promoted retribution. Because they'd taken it away from the judges and brought it into personal relationships. And so you think about it at home, you know? Your sister shoves you. Okay, I can shove you back. Maybe I should shove you back because it says eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It validates that conflict. That person puts you down at work. You are totally validated to put them down in work. You see how it works within the realm of the personal. But it was never meant to be there. What was meant to limit revenge and retribution actually becomes an excuse and actually validates it. So he punched me, so I'm right to punch him back. They did that. They said that. They took that. I am validated to demand it. This law, this prescription was used then to get at your opponents. See how they had twisted it. They'd turned it round. And even more, a bit further down, the second contrast of today's passage, you've heard it, it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemies. Now, love your neighbour, he's again in Leviticus. Leviticus verse 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 19. And it does say love your, your neighbour. But if you read the passage, it never says hate your enemy. So where does this come from? Do you remember the story that uh, Jesus told about uh, the Good Samaritan? Do you remember the question that precipitated that famous parable, that, that account of the three guys and the fact that it's the, the priest and the Levite, the Jewish religious insiders, they leave the guy bleeding and dying on the side of the road, but it's the Samaritan, the outsider, who acts as the neighbour. Do you remember the question? Who is my neighbour? That was a really pertinent question for Jesus' day. Because the law clearly laid down, love your neighbour, and I have to work out, don't I? Who is my neighbour? I have to work out who I have an obligation to love. And so that was a really big discussion for the Jews of Jesus' day. Because they had to work out who was in their circle of responsibility and who, by implication, they could hate. And for the Jews of Jesus' day... They had a whole lot of rules, a whole lot of customs that prescribed who that was. You had to be a Jew. Okay, so the idea that your Samaritan might be a neighbour. No, 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 no. Don't have to love them. They're not my neighbour. You have to be part of my religious group, my racial group. Maybe my religious insider. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they look after their own and they draw those circles and it limits who they have to love and so therefore allows them to exclude, to ostracise, to hate those outside. So do you see how a law, a command that was designed to promote love actually had been twisted to become a law that allowed hate? The first one meant to limit revenge and retribution. It became an excuse for revenge and retribution. To see how religion of the time had twisted these things, taken the Old Testament and turned it into something else. Now, it's worth just stopping and asking ourselves, we can fall into these same traps, can't we? 
we have a society that is built with a very strong sense of personal justice, rights and wrongs. We have a society in which litigation, I understand, is increasing all the time, where we seek to have things restored, where you find that the law courts are used as weapons against others. Ask someone who's been on the rough end of a divorce, who's been taken to the cleaner by their spouse and left with almost nothing. We live in a society where this kind of thing is alive and well. We live in a society where we're pretty comfortable with those who are in our circle, but our media feeds an unease or even a hatred of those who are different. You remember our, uh, our great friend Pauline Hanson? The whole burqa thing? I don't know what you think about that, but it is designed to make us feel uneasy about people who are different to us. If Jesus was telling the story about the Good Samaritan today, it wouldn't be a Samaritan. It'd be an Afghani Muslim. It'd be someone that we find really difficult, really uncomfortable, really other, that we find it very easy to hate, very easy to exclude, very easy to ostracize, very easy to condemn. Who is your other? Who is outside that circle? We'll come back to that. You see, what had happened in Jesus' day is that those very normal, human, and less I say sinful attitudes had become culturally normal. And some of you are feeling that this morning. You've heard this passage, you're hearing me talking, you go, this is just cutting against the grain. We know that we are more comfortable with those who are like us. We know that those who are different, we'd really prefer that they were somewhere else. We know that it's right to seek justice. What's Jesus saying? Don't resist the evildoer. Are you serious? We have imbibed, I think, the same cultural norms. We've taken them in. We've made them second nature. I've grown up in a family. I live in a family now, and I see it. It's very easy for us. Someone does something wrong to us. We just lash out. It's instinctive. It's natural. And they had made it religious. But Proverbs 14 verse 12 warns us. There's a way that appears to be right, but it ends to death. This commonly accepted wisdom, it looks very spiritual, but what's Jesus say? He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? He's saying this great religion that you're saying, this great biblical law that says love your neighbor, you are not doing it any better than the tax collectors. If you greet those who only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Your great biblical faith makes you just exactly the same as every other person around you. What difference is there? Because you've just turned the values of the culture and given them a, a religious shine. You give them a religious validation. But Jesus blows them out of the water. He tells us in Matthew 5 verse 20 
that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisee and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That faith, that biblical expression, Jesus says, it's not biblical at all. It's condemned. It's excluded. Do we feel the force of this? So what's, what's the way forward? How do we leave the ordinary behind? Jesus calls his disciples, as Lewis said, further up and further in. He calls them to actually address not the external attitudes, but what is actually happening in the heart. So he says, I tell you, do not resist the evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, Roman soldiers could press you into their service and force you to carry their gear for a mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, I don't know how you feel about those four examples. Dallas Willard, who wrote about them, he said, I think these four statements, more than any others in the sermon, cause people to throw up their hands in despair or sink into a pit of grinding legalism. I read of a man who sent himself bankrupt, keeping the letter of the law. People asked him, he gave. Sent himself bankrupt. As the alcoholics around the university found that he was an easy mark for getting their drinking money. We can look at what Jesus says and we can think of it in each situation. There are, situ there, there are situations where actually following Jesus' command is actually the wrong thing, isn't it? The alcoholic asks you for money. Do you give it to him? You know that he is going to go and buy more liquor. Is it the right thing to give it to him? The abuser hits you one more time. Is it the right thing just to accept that and to stay there and to say nothing and to not resist, not to seek to escape? The doctor on the way to perform life-saving surgery gets pulled over and asked to do a menial task. The patient's going to die on the operating table without him there, without her there. Is it right for them to say, oh, well, they wanted me to carry the groceries? You can see that this doesn't work. If I owe someone money, but someone else comes up and asks for that money for themselves, is it right for me to give it to them when I owe this person? You can think of all sorts of situations where what Jesus is actually saying doesn't work. So he's obviously not setting down a law, is he? You can get really legalistic about it. What if they slap me on the left cheek first? Do I have to turn them the right cheek? Because Jesus said, turn the, if they hit you on the right cheek, turn the left. It doesn't work. So what is Jesus actually doing? He's giving us a description of a kind of person. He's giving us an example, not a law. In each case, as I said, there are situations where what Jesus commands 
would be the wrong thing to do. And I don't think Jesus is endorsing the abused staying with the abuser. The question we must ask is not, did I do what Jesus commanded? But am I becoming more the person that Jesus described? Because the principle here that Jesus is illustrating in these four examples is selfless love. Is actually giving what is actually best for the person who is actually victimising you. Which may be that you don't retaliate. Which may be that you give what they're asked. Which may be that you recognise their need and you give not only the garment but the coat as well. You need to ask, in this circumstance, what is the most loving thing? What is the thing that will bless this person the most? And can I say, to permit an abuser to continue to abuse is not the loving thing. But to take them to the law court for the sake of seeking revenge, I think Jesus would speak against that as well. That person needs to be prosecuted, can I say that? But if my motive in seeking that prosecution is to make them pay, Jesus would speak about my heart just as much as he would speak of their abuse. But if I am seeking in love to set aside, to set that person out of the community, to protect the innocent, to protect the victim, to stop more abuse happening, if my motivation ultimately is to seek that person's restoration and repentance, that is the right thing to do. You see, it's not an easy thing. You might know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. People know Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was the German pastor who strapped on an explosive vest to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And if you've read Bonhoeffer, he's a man who wrote on this passage. And as he did that, he was aware of the contradictions of what he did. He wrestled with it and he still was not convinced that he was doing the right thing. But under God, he prayed that it was the right thing. But his he was seeking to do the most good. He was seeking to bless, even though he was doing something that on the surface looks really bad. Needless to say, history will tell you, Bonhoeffer didn't succeed. And he was executed in a concentration camp just a few days before the end of the Second World War by Hitler's express command. Hitler knew he was going down, he was going to take Bonhoeffer with him, and he did. It's not easy. It's not easy. But Jesus is saying citizens of the kingdom work from the principle of selfless love. What's Jesus not saying? He's not saying here that passivism is the answer. That in all circumstances, passive compliance is the good thing. It might be, but it might not be. Jesus is not anti-law. Christians have taken this and said there's no reason, or Christians shouldn't be in the police. Christians shouldn't be in the military because you are engaged in resisting the evildoer. So therefore, that's, Jesus says don't. No, Jesus here is talking about the realm of personal relationship, not the role of the state. 
Romans 13 says this, The one in authority is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. They are there to resist the evildoer. And Christians have their place in the police and in the military. Jesus is not anti-war. Jesus is not endorsing abuse, but he is anti-revenge. He is anti-what's-best-here-for-me. He presents a completely different pattern, which is we should ask, even when we are the subjects of horrendous treatment, how do I bless in this? Piper says this. In these verses, Jesus is giving us a description of love that cuts to the depth of our selfishness and fear. If selfishness and fear keep us from giving and going the extra mile, then we need to be broken by these words. But Jesus is not saying that passive compliance in situations of injustice is the only form of love. It can be a form of cowardice. The imperative for Christians as we face injustice is how can we bless not what's the best for me. Jesus goes on, verse 44, he gives us the other contrast. He's, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Jesus takes it even a notch higher. Not don't resist them, not don't seek revenge, but love them, pray for them. So why? Jesus presents a totally new paradigm. Jesus is saying, yes, Religion, as the scribes and the Pharisees were doing, it does promote hate. It does validate violence. It does promote division. So you need something completely different. And this is true biblical gospel Christianity. With Jesus and his death and resurrection at the heart. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees are what Paul the apostle would have described as people who had the form of godliness. They look really good, but they deny its power. Worldliness dressed up, the values of our society dressed up in religious robes. Our worst tendencies given biblical justification. And Jesus is scathing. He would stand with Hitchens and condemn but the answer isn't, as Hitchens thought, to throw the whole God thing out, but to actually address the real issue of our hearts before the real God. I want to give you an example from a while ago, a guy called Billy Bray, Cornish boxer, who was converted. Before his conversion, he was a formidable fighter. One day down the mine, another man who used to live in mortal dread of Bray before his conversion, knowing that he had become a Christian, thought at last he'd found his opportunity and he struck Bray without provocation. Bray could have easily laid him out. But instead, he looked at him and said, May God forgive you. 
even as I forgive you, and no more. The result was that the man endured for several days an agony of mind and spirit which led directly to his conversion. He knew what Billy Bray could do and he knew what the natural man in Billy Bray wanted to do, but Billy Bray did not do it. And that's how God used him. Jesus speaks of citizens of the kingdom as salt and light, as noticeably different. Bray could have killed the man. But through his acceptance and forgiveness, God won that man to himself. Why? Because this is the character of the king. And like parents shape their children. All of us parents know that. We're making little clones of ourselves. You kids, you might think you're going to be different. But I've come to the point at 46 where I recognise I've turned into my father uh, for better, for worse. It's going to happen to you guys as well. Parents know it. We do, don't we? We shape our children. The king shapes the kingdom. It's his character that gives its shape. Jesus says it like this. He said, you do these things that you may be, as in live as, not become, children of your Father in heaven. He is one who causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He is one who sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He is a God who blesses the deserving and the undeserving. He is the one who doesn't hold these things and seek revenge. Jesus, Jesus our King, God our Father, set our character. So why do we do these things? Because he does these things. And that gives us the how. Because you might look at it and think, this is formidable. You don't know my circumstance. You don't know what I suffered. You don't know what I have to deal with. You don't know what she says about me. You don't know what he does to me. And Jesus is here saying, turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Give what's asked. Pray. Bless. What answers do we have? Well, there's a few. Jesus gives us a clue when he tells us to pray for our enemies. Because if you're anything like me, when I have the courage and the love to pray for those who oppose me. The first way God answers that prayer is actually in my own heart. And acknowledging that and asking God, asking God by his spirit to empower you to love, that is a way forward. Prayer is key. Grace. Grace is critical. How do we get into the kingdom? I didn't get into the kingdom. You didn't get into the kingdom by being better than everyone else. We got into the kingdom. Chapter 4, verse 17, the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Repent. We get into the kingdom. If you remember what I said about you know, the job interview with Jesus, fiction. So what do you offer the kingdom? What do you bring? Absolutely nothing. Liabilities only. What Jesus talks about is poverty in spirit. So if I recognize that, as the hymn says, nothing in my hand 
I bring. Naked come to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace. Recognize my own poverty. If I recognize that, if I know grace, I know that before the cross, it's a level playing field. None of us stand by our merits. You know how Jesus said, the Father sends his Son to rise upon the good and the evil? Which one are you? The rain comes on the righteous and the unrighteous. Which one are you? Because if you're honest, if you are poor in spirit, you are the evil. You are the unrighteous. You may not be guilty in this situation, but you are guilty, guilty before God. And it is your sin that took Christ to the cross. It is your sin that took Jesus to the place where he turned the cheek again and again and again for you. It is your sin that meant that Christ's clothes were stripped from him and diced for before the cross. It is for you that Christ took up the load that was not his to carry and walked the extra mile to Golgotha where he was crucified. It is for love of you that he gave everything down to his final breath where he gasped out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Christ did this for us. And as we see that grace, as we live in that love, there we find to do for others the little out of the greatness of the love he has done for us. Not just sun and rain, forgiveness, love, mercy, grace, adoption, the spirit, heirs with Christ, eternal life. Look at how he has blessed us, the evil ones, the unrighteous. And as we live in that love and that grace, as that gospel changes our hearts, it is there that we find, by the power of his spirit, the capacity to seek to bless those who hate, to seek to pray for them, to seek their good. Prayer, grace, hope. Some of us have been through hell on earth at the hands of those who have abused us. Their violence directed against us, whether it's verbal, physical, emotional. Some of us have been terrorized. How do we deal with that? Do we just have to hang out for heaven when God will actually set it all right? The gospel gives us incredible resources. Miroslav Volf, a man who himself was interrogated and tortured by communist soldiers... He speaks of healing that comes not simply by remembering, but by viewing the remembered experiences in a new light. 
What is the new light? The new light is the new light of the gospel. Recognizing that in the death and resurrection of Christ, God keeps his promises. Jesus rose from the dead, so when Romans 8.28 says that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, God keeps his promises. We have a hope that cannot be taken from us. And we might say, why? Why do I walk this road? Why do I have to endure this? And we may never have those answers. But we know that the destination is guaranteed and that God will bring that about. Philippians 1 tells us that the one who began his work in us will carry it on to completion. And the pain that we suffer at the hands of others does not negate those promises and those promises can transform that pain. We have a God who will come, as the creed says, to judge the living and the dead and that lets us let go. Tim Keller said, if I don't believe that there is a God who will eventually put all things right, I will take up the sword and be sucked into the endless vortex of retaliation. Only if I am sure that there is a God who rights all wrongs and settles all accounts perfectly do I have the power to refrain. And it is through the death and resurrection of Jesus that we know that God will set all things right. And we look for that. Revelation. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Hear this promise. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That is the hope that we have, the hope that is certain, the hope that is sure, that is ours through the gospel. That is the hope that in the gospel will allow us, that will empower us by his spirit to bless, to seek the good, to pray, to live as salt and light, to be, as Jesus calls us to be, perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, a heavy word. It cuts, across, it cuts across our desire for self-protection, to look for justice at our own hands, our desire to set things right, and straight ourselves. And Father, our pain and our anger so, so often validates that feeling. But Lord, you call us to live a different life, to walk a different path, to be a different kind of people, a people that are so different from those around us. And Lord, this is only possible through the grace that you have given us in Christ. It is only possible as your spirit works in us.